You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Okay. You've never heard the word circumcised so many times in your whole life. I just know that to be true. So let's just go ahead and confess that together. I want to point out something that I find interesting here, and and it's not unimportant. It was done intentionally by Moses, the writer, and by the Holy Spirit who inspired him as he wrote. If you would look back at chapter 16 and the last verse, you see a fact. Verse 16 of chapter 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to, to Abram. So you remember that uh, God had come and promised to Abram and to Sarai that they would have a son. Um, and, and God was always speaking to Abram when he made these promises. So you could imagine how Sarai would have this kind of doubt in her mind of whether or not this promise was going to be fulfilled through her, Abram's wife, or maybe through another, that God would give a son and that great nations would come and, uh, uh, from this son. And so Sarai developed a plan. And the plan was ill-advised, um, but her plan was to give her servant Hagar to Abram uh, as a wife so that perhaps, in Sarah's words, she will give us a son. This uh, obviously was a shortcut Uh, to try to see God's promise fulfilled. It it wasn't done, uh, I don't believe, from faith in God, but rather it was done uh, in an attempt to try to help God accomplish God's word. So here, uh, Hagar is given to Abram as a wife, and she becomes pregnant immediately, and now there's strife in the home between Sarai and Hagar, and Abram is forced to deal with this strife. Uh, Just another reason why I think Uh, having more than one wife is just a problem. Uh, So there's all this strife in the home, and now here is this son Ishmael who's been born, but he hasn't been born out of this patient waiting on God. He's been born in in an attempt to help God, Uh, but nevertheless, he's born. He exists, and now here he is, and what do you do with that? Well, Only God can give children, and so God obviously granted it to Hagar and to Abram that this son would be born, and now they have to deal with the fact that he is going to be what God calls a wild donkey of a man. He's just going to be obstinate, always rebellious, hard to deal with. He's going to be an affliction to people who are around him, and yet he deals graciously with Hagar in the midst of all this and blesses her and keeps her. So she bears this son and she raises him. And then verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. 86 years old. Now look at chapter 17 and the first verse, when Abram was 99 years old. So from 86 to 99, 13 years pass between chapter 16 and verse, uh, sorry, chapter 17. I don't want you to miss the fact that 13 years have passed. 13 years. You tell me, with all these great promises made, all these things that Abram and and Sarah are, uh, Sarai are longing for, hoping for, trusting God for, and, and it's already been some years, and now they've had a child but not a child that was born according to a promise, rather a child that was born according to the flesh. They have this child born in their home and a 13-year span of watching him grow up in their home while they're still waiting to see a son. A son is here, but not the son. That's hard. That's a hard 13-year period of waiting. I, I feel like when we're waiting in righteousness and we're faithful and we're patient, the waiting doesn't seem as bitter. But when we start to circumvent 
God's plans, God's will, and we try to get into the flesh to help God accomplish good things, and now we've added sin to the equation. Now the waiting really tastes bitter. And so you can imagine for those 13 years what the waiting was like. I kind of imagined that as Ishmael grew stronger, the longing and the aching grew stronger. As he grew bigger, I imagined that the reminder of their failure to trust God and wait patiently on him grew bigger. And this 13-year period is hard, but remember that now it has been 24 years since God first spoke to Abram. 24 years. I know it's hard to miss that because we're just blasting through the text and it's very chronological and just this happened and then this happened and this happened and, you, and it can just move really quickly in your mind. I mean, you could read all of this, that we, this verse 17 chapters, you could read all this in an hour. 24 years has passed and all of this waiting and failing and circumnavigating God's will and a son of flesh being born out of a plan concocted to try to get what you want from God without waiting on him for it. I mean, this is tough. This is a tough situation that they find themselves in. But here's what it reminds me of, what it kind of brings up in my heart and and that I felt would be important for us to address this morning. There's a question as you just sit with Abram and Sarai in their disappointment, uh, in their regret, and watching this Ishmael grow up in their house for 13 years while they're still waiting on the child of promise. And I want to ask you a question. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Now, that question could be posed, I could ask you that, and there could be a lot of vagueness to it, and, and there could be a lot of misapplication to that question. Just by asking that question, when I say, what are you waiting for? Immediately, you might put yourself in the place of Abram and Sarai, that God has promised you something, and that you're waiting for him to give it to you. What are you waiting for? And it's not a bad question, but our hearts can take it to a bad place. Let me explain. Before you hear me say, keep waiting on God, keep trusting God for that, I want you to remember that Abram and Sarai were waiting on God and trusting God for something that God had clearly promised to them, clearly spoken promises to them about something that he would do. Now, there are all kinds of good things we want from God. All kinds. It may or not be what God wants for us, but we can ask God for those things. We can wait on him. We can seek him for those things. But in Abram and Sarai's case, they were waiting on God to fulfill the spoken word of God. He had said that he would do this thing. He actually told them. So how do we compare this to ourselves? When we ask the question, what are we waiting for? What are we asking God for and waiting patiently for him to do for us or give to us or fulfill on our behalf? We have to compare it to something comparable. So God spoke directly to Abram and Sarai and made promises, and then they waited for those promises to be fulfilled. What is comparable for us? Well, the comparable situation we will normally find ourselves in is seeing that God has promised something to us in his written word. God has said these things. We know for certain that God has spoken this word and it's been preserved for us miraculously through the ages. Words inspired by his spirit given to us as Promises. So just as definitely as Abram knew that God had spoken to him, we know God has spoken to us. Now, what has he promised? What are we waiting for? 
Again, there's all kinds of really good things, even things that in our hearts we mean to the glory of God, that we're trusting in because we believe it would please God. But if God hasn't promised it to us, then we're not waiting on it in the same way that Abram and Sarai were waiting on God to fulfill his promise. We're waiting on things that we want, but not things that God has said we need some examples of things we know God has promised to us. We all know that he would save us from his wrath by his grace through our faith in Christ. We know that we can wait on God for this because Ephesians 2.8 says so. We know for certain that God has promised to sanctify us. We know this. We can cling to that promise and wait. We could wait 24 years and then we could even botch it up after a while and wait 13 years, still waiting with some regrets in our background, but knowing that God will still fulfill his promise, even overcoming our failures and our rebellions in order to do it. We know that God will sanctify us because Jesus said so in John 17, 17. Paul said so in Philippians 1, 6. He said so in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. It is God's will to conform us to the image of Christ. We can wait on God for this. For the return of Christ to raise us to eternal life. Aren't we all waiting for that? Man, I want that. Our hearts yearn for that. We ask God for that. Seek God for that. Oh, Jesus, come soon. We can wait on him for that. And we can wait with a sure hope. Why? Because God has promised that Christ would return. We know this because 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 1 Corinthians 15.52 make it very clear that the Spirit has inspired promises from God to man that Christ would return and redeem and remake his creation, his people with him forever. No need for the Son. God himself will be our light, will be reunited and rejoined to him forever to live with peace. No more sin. No more failure. No more brokenness, no more weakness, no more doubt. Life face to face with God. Wait for this. Wait for it, knowing that God will fulfill this. These are the things that we know God has promised to us. As surely as Abram knew God spoke a promise of a son to him, we know God has promised us these things. And more, there's more that the word says there's more promises we have from God, but these are just some kind of monumental, just mind-blowing things. God said, I will do this. We can trust him for it. So as we learn from the experience of Abram and Sarai, let's learn to trust God completely and wait on him patiently for those things that he has promised. Now, I'm not going to pretend that what I just said to you doesn't introduce some questions about things that we're asking God for and trusting God for. So I'm going to get very specific about some things from my own life and then, and then maybe guess at some things in your life. Things that we think God wants for us that are good things, wholesome things, uh, but nevertheless, things we have to hold with an open hand. And it's hard because they're things that we care so deeply for, things that we yearn for, that we want even for the Lord's sake. But we have to hold with an open hand because we cannot find chapter and verse where God says, definitely yes. For example, I want to see my children walk humbly with the Lord and to live long enough to see them teach their children to walk humbly with the Lord. But it has not been promised to me. 
I want to see my brother believe with his heart and confess with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it has not been promised to me. That's hard. We all might want enough money from a job we love, a house full of family and friends who love us and walk with us, a marriage that feels more like a stroll on the beach and less like arguing on a crowded bus. We all want that. We feel like we need that. We yearn for it. We ask God for it. We wait on him for it. But these things have not been promised to us. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? They're not bad things. They're not sinful things. They're good desires. And we wait on God, hoping that he will give these things to us in his mercy. But he has not promised them to us. So when we don't receive them, there is no accusation to launch at the Lord. He has not broken his word when you don't receive things that he has not promised to you. He's merely been merciful in a way you didn't ask him to be and in a way we don't understand. That's hard. But what's here in the text, what's here in the text Please hear me. Please hear me. What's here in the text for us is the call to believe God and wait patiently for him to fulfill his promises to us. And listen, there is nothing, nothing God has not promised to us that we need more than the things that God has promised to us. Nothing. So if we know that God will fulfill every word spoken to us and we hold with an open hand all those things that we only hope in his mercy he will grant to us, but we don't know for sure. Listen, in the tension, we know that we will not only survive, but we will have joy in his presence. We'll have peace that flows from his feet, from his throne. We know that he's good to us, that he loves us, that he cherishes us, that he's pouring out his grace and his blessings on us, even in the midst of our longing for things that he has not given to us. You will never receive the promises of God and still be left empty and yearning. He will fulfill he will accomplish and it will not leave you with regrets. All the things that we ask for and yearn for and plead with God for that we don't receive will end up categorized as things that we realize one day wouldn't have even been good for us. Trusting God and that final fulfillment I think is the hardest thing for us to do here and now. To believe that when he says yes, it's for our good. And when he says no, it's for our good. That's hard. But we know that he's made promises that he will fulfill. So we learn from Abram and Sarai when they walk in humbleness and when they walk in faithfulness to the Lord and they wait patiently on him, we have an example of long-suffering and looking to the Lord, having an eternal mindset that he will, in his time, say yes to the things that he's promised. And to know what those things are that he's promised us, that we know he'll say yes to, really, honestly, all those things that we don't know he's promised just pale. They just pale in comparison. No matter how good, wonderful, how comforting they might be, they're nothing compared to the things that God said he will definitely do. 
So let's keep moving then. Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then the obvious thing happens, he fell on his face. The Lord appeared to him. I don't know about you, but if God ever appears to me and says, I am God Almighty, I feel like I'd be on my face before he could finish Almighty. Just out of terror, honestly, just out of terror. Abram does the one thing that makes the most sense here. He falls on his face and he doesn't say anything. He's speechless. No new information, nothing shocking here that Abram hadn't heard before, but God appearing after a long time to him after many years to him and restating his promise. Abram falls on his face. God continues in verse three, and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Still nothing new. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Abram means exalted father, while Abraham means father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Has Isaac been born? It's okay, you can answer. No. This promised son, this heir, this descendant, who now for 24 years has been promised to Abram, still doesn't exist. And yet God says with such confidence, with finality, as if it's already been accomplished, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations because in God's heart, it was as good as done. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Remember, he's speaking to a 99-year-old man here. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. There'll be a nobility. There'll be an honor about his descendants. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, something that lasts forever to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Still no new information. Important, mind-boggling, but not new. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. God had already said he'd give him an heir. He would make him into nations. He already said he would give him the land, that he would be his God and that this covenant would between, be between God and Abram based on God's faithfulness. Verse nine. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Now, God has teed it up here. He said, this is the thing that I'm doing with you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, at this point in history, it's not clear, at least to me, if circumcision is even a thing. I mean, why would that occur to anyone? <laughs> you shall be circumcised. Okay. I think I know what that word means, but help me understand, Lord, in the flesh of your foreskins. Okay, great. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. A sign, a sign of the covenant. It's not the covenant itself, but it's a sign of the covenant. Just so we're tracking with the Lord here. He's gonna get even more specific about how to accomplish this. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations. So, okay, so just me and my family or just, just the eight-day-olds in my household? No, every male 
from here on out, when they're eight, it'll be done. Every male, okay, not just for now, but throughout your generations. Okay, but just the people from my own lineage, right? Whether born in your house or bought with your money. From any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. This is not a joke. This is everybody. This is all the dudes. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Now verse 14 lets us know this is, this is deadly serious with the Lord. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He's made a willful decision to not be mine and he shall be cut off. The promise to Abraham here, this covenant, this sign, is, is meant to be a demonstration that God is serious about what he's saying. And he doesn't only want to know it himself, but he wants the people he's covenanting with to know for sure that they are God's people. And he wants all the nations that surround them to know for sure that they are distinct. There's something different. They've been set apart and they belong to God. And how do you know? Because they have this unusual custom this unusual custom that none of the other nations of the world are accustomed to. Because again, why would it occur to anyone to just on a Wednesday circumcise themselves? It just wouldn't. They become very distinct, very peculiar in this way. No one else on earth does this. And God did that on purpose because he wants them to know and everyone else to know, these are my people. Verse 15, God continues. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, Sarai and Sarah and Sarah both mean princess. I don't know. I mean, if they mean the same thing, maybe God was just like, I don't want her to feel left out. You got a name change out of this. Verse 16. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. Now this has become more specific than God was in the past. A son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come for her. This is mirroring now the same thing that he was promising to Abraham. Then Abraham fell on his face again, but now he's laughing and he said to himself, not to the Lord, but he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? It's almost as if in Abraham's heart, he's still thinking, God, you're late on this. You're late on this. The clock's been ticking all this time and you were too patient in fulfilling your word. Do you really think that at this point, my dusty old carcass is going to produce a son and my wife, beautiful as she is, is beyond those years? He's laughing inside himself at this. And then the outflow, what he actually says to the Lord in response to this feeling he has that there's no way this can be done is verse 18. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Okay, listen, you're late on this promised son from Sarah thing. So let's just be honest. That's not going to happen. Can Ishmael live before you? Could you please reverse this curse on him and make him the child of promise? Let him live before you. God said, no. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac, 
Isaac means he laughs. It doesn't mean some really cool thing like the savior of his people or the first one. It doesn't mean anything. It means he laughs. Why? Because Abraham and Sarah both now have had moments where God made a clear, distinct, authoritative, prophetic promise and their response was to go, yeah, right. And God is going, look, it's happening. You can name the kid, he laughs. It's happening. (laughs) I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Now God gets so merciful. I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. So I've heard you. I will grant it to you that Ishmael will live, that he'll have descendants, that they'll even become a great nation. Princes will be born from him. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. The greater thing will come through Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. He tricked them. It was a dirty trick. And he circumcised. <laughs> I just don't know how he got them all together for this. I just don't, I mean, the text isn't clear, but there just must have been, I don't know how he did it. It's a different culture. It's very patriarchal. When the dude says, get in here, everybody just does it unquestioningly. Maybe he didn't tell them why. It's just like, hey, family meeting, all the dudes. And they get in there and the door locks. What's happening? Why do you have a knife? Wire all of our pants off. I don't understand what's happening. (laughs) Father, explain yourself. Every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he he, he circumcised. Abraham is not a joke. He is a man who is doing what God told him to do. He circumcised every male member of his household and himself. Guys, this is thousands of years ago. They didn't have like surgical procedures. This man obeyed God. Please don't miss that. God has spoken to him authoritatively. And now at this point, as a 99-year-old man, the place we all want to be in our sanctification, right? Don't we all want to be as mature and as sanctified as the 99-year-old saint who's just like, God is going to do what he's going to do. We're all just along for the ride. That's where we all want to be. And we can look now, we can see this now finally is where Abraham is at 99. He just does what God says. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. All the men of his house, those born in the house, those bought with the money, were all circumcised. And this circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God was making with Abraham to give him a son, a son of promise not a son of flesh. You won't accomplish this. Ishmael will not be my covenanted son. It will be Isaac, the one you had no control over, the one you couldn't produce in your own power, the one you couldn't concoct a plan to create. It will be Isaac. And this will be a sign of my covenant with you. This promise to Abraham to give him a son 
and that through Isaac, God will fulfill his promise to make Abraham and Sarah into a great nation. The immediate purpose in Abraham and Sarah's life is that God is demonstrating his love for them, his grace on them, his plan to use them and to work through them. But ultimately, this promise is less about Abraham and Sarah and more about God himself. It's not about them. It's about God himself. God loves them. God shows them grace. God works through them, but not ultimately for the sake of making them great, but to make his own name great in the earth, demonstrate his sovereignty, his gracious rule over all of his creation. That's what this is actually about. We're seeing it kind of through the eyes of Abraham and Sarah as they walk as human beings dealing with a covenanting God, a sovereign, all-powerful, gracious God. We see it through their eyes, but it's not about them. It's about God and his glory in the earth. God is for Abraham, but God is about God's glory. So all of these promises, these gifts, these plans, the covenant of circumcision are all shadows. They're all shadows of greater things that find their fulfillment in Christ. In Christ alone, all these things are pointing us towards him, directing us towards him. They're not complete just because they're complete in Abraham or in Isaac. They found their completion in Christ. Now, I'm not just going to try to kind of uh, piece together some concepts and try to prove it to you. I'm going to let the Bible be the Bible and tell you for itself. So would you please turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2. That's New Testament. You're going to go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You're going to get through First and Second Corinthians. You're going to get through Galatians, and then you're going to find Colossians. Sorry, that was a little confusing. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to go to, uh, actually go to Galatians to see some more from Paul. Now remember, we're reading this so that we can understand that what was promised To Abraham, what was fulfilled in Isaac are just shadows of greater things that are coming down the road. Verse 8, Colossians chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or traditions of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all authority. In him also you were, what? It's okay, you can say it. I don't want to be the only person in this room who said the C word this morning. In him also you were with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That is, you sinned, therefore legally you deserve the penalty of death. But Christ has canceled the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Instead of a cross that says, King of kings, King of the Jews, our cross says, record of debt canceled. Sin debt canceled. Verse 15, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Paul's giving this picture here of salvation. This is a text about salvation, 
about what Christ accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection so that we might be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That Christ died to sin, we died to sin. Christ was raised to God, we're raised to God. And in the midst of all of it, he starts talking about circumcision, that is to cut around. But it's not cutting around something with the hands, with a knife, like Abraham circumcising the male members of his household. Rather, it's the circumcision of Christ. Something done to our hearts. That something is cut away. And now there's a mark on us. A sign of a covenant left in our hearts that says we're distinct. We're different. We're peculiar in this world. We don't belong to this world. We are God's people. When Christ lived and died and rose from the dead on our behalf, when we believed in him, our hearts were circumcised with the circumcision of Christ, a sign of the covenant between us and God, that he's our God and we are his people. Now look at Galatians chapter 5. You're going to turn backwards, not too far towards Galatians chapter 5, another letter from Paul, but writing to different people now, writing to the church in Galatia, who were having some trouble now because they had what they called Judaizers, people who were coming in the name of Christ, but saying, if you're going to belong to Christ, you still have to keep Jewish law. That faith in Christ is a Jewish thing. So if you want to be God's people in Christ, you need to put your faith in him and you need to add your works to it so that God will save you. But here he says in Galatians chapter 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That is slavery to a system that can't save you. Look, he says in verse 2, look. I, Paul, say this to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That is, if you're being circumcised in hopes that it will somehow add to your resume and God will surely save you because you kept this Jewish rite, if you accept this way of thinking, if this is part of your belief system, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, you're not trusting Christ, so you are not belonging to Christ because you're trusting in your own works to save you and not in Christ's works alone. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You can't just take one little piece of it as a sign and neglect the rest of it. If you're going to be saved by the law, then you've got to be saved by obedience to the whole law. You're severed from Christ, he says. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Because it's not a righteousness we can gain on our own. It's something that comes through faith in Christ. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. They had begun to doubt that. They started to think that their own works could be added to Christ's works and secure their salvation. But neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is worth anything in God's eyes anymore. Because it's not about a work of our flesh that saves us. God's covenant with his people is not a covenant in the flesh. It's not about genetics anymore. It's a spiritual kingdom. We belong to him by grace through faith. Verse 7, you were running well. 
Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It works through the dough. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, he says. In all their circumcising, I wish they would just turn the knife on themselves and finish the job. To be silent. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Now, why are we saying these things? Like, man, the Old Testament mentioned circumcision once and you just went off, bro. Because what's happening in Paul's letters is an explanation of how circumcision is completed in Christ. How it finds its greater meaning, its greater fulfillment. Because this is not a kingdom that is built on flesh and works of the flesh and obedience to the law. In other words, you cannot be good enough to earn God's favor and acceptance. You cannot. From the time Abraham started circumcising the members of his household to the time Moses gave the law to the time the Jews continuously disobeyed it throughout all the centuries until Christ came, it was just one big demonstration that human beings cannot earn the favor of God. But Christ, Christ has earned the favor of God for all of us through his own obedience, through his own keeping of the law, through his perfection, through his holiness, through his righteousness, we can look to Christ now and we can see him as the fulfillment of all of these promises. Even circumcision. He gives us a greater circumcision of our hearts to mark us eternally forever not because of anything we could do, not because of any laws we could keep, but because of himself, we know that we're secure. Because of himself, we know that we're loved, we're accepted, we're set apart as the people of God. Christ is the fulfillment. Now, in light of this, I think there are two things that have to happen. The first thing is we have to appreciate the magnitude of what God is doing here. That God is not only setting aside for himself a people that will be called by his name, that will be people of promise, people of promise and not our own promises to God, but God's promises to them. You are mine, he says to them. And here's a sign and he gives them a sign so that they will know and so that everyone will know God has made promises to them. That's the first thing I think we need to appreciate here is that God has done a, a wonderfully gracious thing to these people. And the second thing we need to realize is our flesh, ours, not just theirs, and not just his descendants after him, our own personal flesh is continually, listen, please hear me, continually trying to forget that the whole rest of the Bible was written. And if we could just to return to a simpler time, when I do this and then God is bound to do this, if I will just do this thing, just one time even, if I can just have this one moment where I make a decision that's good and then God is bound now to do something for me, wouldn't it just be so much easier? So much more simple? I can do that. I mean, all the ladies in the room are like, I feel like I got out for free. The dudes in the room at least have to sacrifice something. But if we could just our flesh wants to tell us all the time and, and beckon us and call us to a much simpler way. Just do things 
that are good. And because of those good things you've done, God will accept you. And as long as you know you're doing this set of things, you know that God accepts you. And when you fail, you know that he rejects you. It's very simple. And if you know that he rejects you because of the bad things you did or the good things you didn't do, then you know the only thing to do is to start doing the good things again. This is easy, people. Your flesh is continually trying to convince you that God will justify you if you just can do the right things. And your flesh is always trying to tell you that if you fail to do those things, God will reject you. But Christ is saying something much greater. Just like these promises are kind of for Abraham, but not really about Abraham, we know that the covenant we have with Christ is for us, but it's not really about us. It's about Christ. Christ receiving a kingdom, Christ reigning over that kingdom in majesty and holiness and sovereignty. And his people are not in any way going to enable him to be the ruler of his kingdom because it's not about us in our obedience. That's why circumcision nor uncircumcision really doesn't count for anything. Because our level of devotion or Obedience is not what God is waiting for. There are things that God has promised that we are waiting for. But God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our things. He doesn't need our maturity. He doesn't need our obedience, our conformity. Those things are a gift of his grace. Circumcision is null and void now because a much greater circumcision has happened to our hearts. Now, to complete this conversation, we have to abandon all promises from our flesh. Abandon them completely. They're empty. They're worthless. They don't save. But the promises that come from God in Christ, they will stand forever. There is no doubt that these things will be done. So cast yourself completely on Christ. Ask him to do the things that only he can do. The greater things, the eternal things, not the temporary flesh things that you could do in your own power. Ask Christ to accomplish those things that you know you can't do. Things of the heart. Circumcision of the heart. Conformity from the heart. Obedience from the heart. Desire and love from the heart. Forgiveness from the heart. We can give an appearance of these things, but we cannot do them really. Only Christ can create that in us. He's the greater fulfillment of these shadows. Let's ask for his help. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.